everybody. It is great to see you. And yes, we are kind of in the middle of all of that 
bad weather, so if somebody comes in here and says that there's something headed our way, then you know we can go downstairs. We're covered by eight inches of concrete all around, so it's a, basically a safe vault. And, you know, don't run out in panic screaming. That will be disruptive. <laughs> but, you know, just if, if that happens, I don't anticipate it will, but if it does, then just please be orderly and make your way downstairs, okay? Nod your head this way. Okay, we will. And also, there is an additional class beginning tonight over in the annex. It requires a mask. But it is basically, I think, a continuation of what is going on on Sunday nights, the biographical type studies. Jerry Barrett is the teacher tonight. I think there will be a rotation of classes or teachers. And not sure it was advertised adequately. So just want to let you know. And look, peace. If you want to go to that class, great then you can make your way over to the Annex, and you'll be welcomed there. Otherwise, we are going to continue our study of things that a church must do. It's a challenge. We're responsible as members of the Lord's Church, and we'll be looking at the important aspect of establishing the congregation tonight. But before we start that, I want to sing a song with you. 546. Five, four, six.
All right, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your blessings today. Thank you for safety and protection as we have gone through a series of storms and as yet uh, face more. And Lord, we're just praying that you'll uh, aid us as we go through uh, the physical manifestation of storms. But as we sang, we, we realize that our lives have storms that are emotional and spiritual, and we're praying for deliverance through those as well. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless us in our efforts here, that we'll be effective in spreading your gospel to our community and to our region and even the whole world. Lord, give each of us individually a vision of what could be, and then help us to be responsible enough to do those things that are within our power to work with other brothers and sisters here to accomplish great things in your name and to your glory. I pray, Lord, that you'll be with us tonight as we understand the responsibility that we have to establish this congregation. Help me, Lord, to explain exactly what I mean by that and be with those who hear these words that they'll be inspired to be a part of the maturation process of this congregation. Thank you for our leaders and for the guidance that they give us. But Lord, more than anything, just motivate us to respond to that, to act on the things that we know we must do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there are some things, as we've already noted, that we must do. It's not not optional. It's what the Lord expects of us to do as, as the church. Tonight, we're going to talk about the responsibility that we have to establish the congregation that we're a part of. Now, the word establish is, well, it's represented variously in the scriptures. Sometimes it's the idea of strengthening. Sometimes it's the idea of settling a thing, of kind of bringing it down and making it a foundational thing, stable. And sometimes it just carries the idea of confirming. There is the expectation of something, but we don't just take for granted that it is that, we want to confirm it. We want to go back and check on it, make sure that things are progressing as we expected them to. Now, I'll be honest with you, this particular subject right here, this is a neglected subject. For instance, we do mission work. Typically, when we get a report about mission work, we get all the statistics about the responses. We'll hear about how many baptisms there were. And really, we, we wonder about that, right? We want to know if the gospel is being effective and that people are responding to it. And boy, some churches will continue in a work so long as those numbers remain steady or they're growing. I do not recall, and and I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but I do not personally recall any time where I got a report 
that had statistics in it relative to a group of people maturing in the faith. How are they growing spiritually? In fact, to be honest, I, I don't really even know how you would represent that statistically. Would you do it by saying that so many of those who are members here lead singing or conduct Bible classes or are involved in evangelism or, you know, name some activity of the church? Would we, would we statistically categorize it that way? And are visible things like that really an indication of spiritual growth? of maturation, of maturing, of being established, strengthened, settled, confirmed. I don't know. I don't know. You can quantify it. But here's something that I do know. And I don't mean for this to be a provocative sort of statement. I mean it just to simply be a statement of fact that as much as we often do put emphasis on baptisms, the response to the gospel, obeying the gospel, that the whole idea of establishing a congregation of people or of establishing individuals within that congregation is just as important as them being initially baptized. Now, what is the importance of it. What, what is the importance of establishing? Well, you don't have to go very far because typically those passages that do deal with baptism also deal with this, and maybe we don't even notice it. I, I'm thinking about the Great Commission initially. In Matthew chapter 28, specifically verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, so be it. Amen. Okay. We say, see that passage right there? You want to be a disciple? You must be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Into the family of God. That, that is true. But back up for a second. In order to be a disciple, to make a disciple, a person first has to be taught something, right? You, you, don't, you don't just go into a community and start grabbing people who are walking on the sidewalk and baptize them and say, we did it. You know, we had 28 baptisms yesterday. Well, tell us what happened. Well, you know, we got a, a van load of some really strong people and went out there, grabbed them, and dunked them in the water. Well, they were technically baptized. They were immersed, but those were not disciples. Disciples are the result of a person first believing and then that belief qualifying them to obey the gospel, right? Romans 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for, that is, the gospel is for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. If you want to be saved by the gospel, then first you have to believe. But you can't believe unless you've first been taught something. So a person has to be taught, 
And then they obey the gospel. They're baptized. And then watch this. Teaching them, those baptized believers, those disciples, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. Do you notice that aside from the fact of the gospel components itself that are found in the baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, aside from that, there is an awful lot of teaching going on right here. The idea that a person is initiated into the truth, and then after they become a disciple, they continue learning things. They're continuing to be taught. In fact, he says, teaching them to observe not just some of the things, but all things that I've commanded you. That is a maturing process. That is an establishing of a person, of growing them to that maturity. The Apostle Paul also talked something about that, the process anyway, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Same process, right? Teach, teach, teach. What I've learned, wait a second, I heard it, but who to hear it from? I heard it from the Lord. Galatians 1, 11 and 12, didn't receive it from men, nor was I taught it, but it came by revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus delivers the word to Paul. Paul says, you know that message that was delivered to me by revelation that you heard and was instilled in you? Then you take that and you deliver that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also with the idea that that goes on and on and on, generation after generation after generation, maturing, becoming faithful, and growing in their relationship to the Lord. The idea of establishing teachers who will teach others, who will teach others, and on and on it goes. That's also true of Jesus himself. In Ephesians chapter 4, 11, and 12, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of minister, ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, equipping ministry edification. All of those come after a person has obeyed the gospel. Learned the truth, yes, I was taught, but you are taught after that too. The idea of establishing a person for the future, for the future generations to come. One mouth convinced, sharing it with another person, that person becoming a mouthpiece for the gospel. You see the early church involved in this to a great degree. For instance, um, Paul and Barnabas, there's a big missionary team. In Acts chapter 14, in verses 21 to 23, Paul and Barnabas are described there as confirming the souls of the disciples, confirming, that's our idea of establishing, strengthening, settling them, confirming the souls of those disciples. Yeah, they know the truth, but we want to go back and check, make sure that they're growing in their knowledge, right? Being taught the things that the apostles have been taught, continuing that line of instruction, growing in their relationship with the Lord, becoming useful for the spread of the gospel. A little bit later in chapter 5, verse 32, it's a man by the name of Judas 
and Silas, who are exhorting and strengthening, there's our word, the idea of establishing, strengthen, settle, confirm. They are strengthening the brethren. And then just a few verses later, actually a a little section there, it's Paul and Silas now. Silas has joined himself with Paul instead of Judas. And they are actually traveling now. And the Bible says, beginning there at verse 36, going through verse 41, that they were confirming churches. They were confirming churches that had been established in Syria and Cilicia. You see, the idea is, okay, I want to make sure that the individual brethren are growing, but also as they are growing, well, the churches ought to be growing as well. The the level of maturity of a local congregation is going to be directly related to the growing maturity of its individual members. There is no doubt about it. Yeah, baptism, absolutely necessary. But guess what? Establishing the congregation is also equally important. Now, what are some reasons for that? Well, one reason has to do with what we saw in the Great Commission. The idea of establishing teaching or establishing the truth in somebody. Now that's what was happening in Matthew 28 at verse 20. That's the second aspect of it. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now think about, first of all, the response that those apostles had had to what they'd been taught. They're risking everything now to preach the gospel. They're going to give their lives in the propagation of that gospel as they spread it through the whole world. But now he says, you're going to be teaching these disciples who've now obeyed the gospel, teaching them, you're going to teach them to observe the very same things that I've commanded you. To observe doesn't mean like, well, we're going to give them a manual and then they can sit back and read that and, you know, gain a bunch of knowledge. That is not the idea. To observe it means I learn it and then I do it. I learn it and I act on it. Same as Jesus' parable of the building of the house, you either build it on the rock or you build it on the sand, right? The only difference between those two was both of them heard it, but the one who built his house on the sand heard it but did not do it. The person who was built on the rock heard it and then acted on it. That's who we're talking about. Teaching them, these disciples obeyed the gospel, teaching them to observe, to do it all things that I've commanded you. Put these words into action. When you do that, you are establishing. Another reason that you're in this process is not not just because of the truth that's been established in you, but you want to be faithful to that truth. So you're growing in faithfulness as you are going along in the process of your growth in the truth. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, now, this, this is in the midst of that description of them confirming these disciples, uh, confirming the souls of these disciples. But he says, here's the thing that we're telling them, that you must enter into tribulation. 
in order to enter into the kingdom of God. You are going to face tribulation. So what they're doing is they're going out into these churches that are hard hit by persecution, and they're saying, don't worry, because being a child of God involves this. So don't let this be a stumbling block to you. You must enter into this time of tribulation if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. So don't be shocked when it happens. It reminds me, as maybe it does you, of the thing that we read especially for all the churches, but it's just worded so beautifully in Revelation 2.10, that if they would be faithful until death, they would receive the crown of life. You know, you endure this. Hang on in there. I know it seems like the world is crushing in around you. I know that you're tempted to leave the faith, but don't do it. Hang in there, and you're going to receive the crown of life. Man, that has a lot of meaning with it. But don't miss that point that I'm trying to make, just the salient point, and that is a faithfulness. Remain faithful. If you'll remain faithful and you're continuing to grow, then you are being established in the faith. And and then there's that thing about the battle that we fight. And if you haven't heard this already, let this be the time. And then don't leave here unprepared. You, as a child of God, are continually, whether you feel like it's true or not, maybe sometimes you just sit back and take a deep breath and say, ha, oh, a time of peace. Don't be fooled into that, because you are constantly at war with the devil. And so part of our establishing is preparing ourselves for the onslaught of Satan's efforts against us. And it is just in those easy times, And you put those in quotation marks. But it's just in those easy times that Satan takes advantage. In Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the sage, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Be strong in the Lord. Be established in the Lord. Be settled, be confirmed. That's the idea. Well, how can I? Well, just look, you know, you can fight this battle if you'll go into the battle with those things that will preserve you spiritually. And as Stephen uh, noticed a few weeks ago in our, our Sunday evening Bible study, all of those are components of the effect of the Word of God on our life. Am I observing that truth or not? That's, that's really the key. So there was this talk show, and on the talk show there was a special guest who happened to be, at the time, a reigning champion bodybuilder. And so as the bodybuilder was sitting there in the seat, the interviewer asked, 
Well, you know, I, I, I see and I've done a little research. I, I see how you're defined in certain aspects of your body. And, and I'm just wondering, why, why is it that you work on certain muscles and not others? Well, I- instead of answering the question, he just jumped up out of his seat and he started posing and flexing those huge muscles and just showing his physique from the top of his body all the way down to his calves. And you can imagine the audience just went wild. They were applauding and screaming and whistling, and it took forever to settle those people down. But when they finally did, and when he was seated in his seat, the interviewer said, wow, what a reaction. Listen, I'm just really curious. What exactly do you do? with those muscles? How do you use them? And about that time, he jumped up out of that seat again and he started posing and stretching and pointing and flexing and got those muscles just so agitated and the the veins just bursting out of the skin. It was just, wow! And everybody just, again, just applauding and screaming and whistling. And he sat down and the crowd just... Boy, finally settled down, and the interviewer seemed a little bit perturbed. So she asked again, you know, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm just really curious. How do you use those muscles? What are they good for? And the bodybuilder seemed bewildered by the question. Because he really didn't use them for anything. Except to put on display and gain the applause of other people. Made me think about us, Christians. Why do you exercise the spiritual muscles that you exercise? Why do you try to develop certain aspects of your Christianity. For instance, why do you read the Bible so much as you do? Why do you attend Bible classes and church services? Why do you pray? You say, well, I I do those things to develop them. Okay. But what do you use them for? You may have great understanding of the Scriptures. You may be able to describe just about any process that the church was entered into. You you know all the answers, but I'm asking you, you know that stuff, and you have talent in a lot of areas, but what do you use it for? I'm afraid a lot of Christians today, especially in our modern age, mostly develop their spiritual talents just to put on display, just to get some applause, rather than actually using those things in order to grow the kingdom of God. I mean, isn't that what it's about? It isn't about just coming together 
and having a worship service. It isn't just about coming here and partaking of the Lord's Supper. It isn't just about singing some songs or praying some prayers. It isn't just about putting money in the collection plate. It's actually about giving that tribute to God and then marching out of that door and using the things that we have developed in our worship of God, in our appreciation and love for the thing that he loves, and that is lost souls. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, not to become the most famous person in history, but to seek and to save the lost. Now, there's an interesting prayer, I will say, that has to do with the idea of establishing. And it's found in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Now, in verses 3 and 4, you know, Paul is in prison. He's writing to these brethren. And there are a lot of beautiful things that are expressed there. There's no doubt about it that he loves these brethren. And it comes out in the writing. It comes out through the depiction that he has of his plight, but of his love of those who are preaching the truth and his confidence that Christ is going to be glorified. It comes through in, in his love of those brethren as he believes they're doing their very best to walk in step with Jesus and to follow after his example. It's evidenced in the fact that despite the difficulties that one might face, that you can have great joy and you can be free of anxiety. And even, even if there are quarrels among the brethren, that what we do is we keep in mind what's the most important thing. And, and as Dale reminds me on many occasions, we just want to keep the main thing, the main thing. When I read the book of Philippians, that's what, that's what impresses me. But let me tell you something about his love for those brethren it wasn't just, I'm glad for you, and wow, you're wonderful, and you guys, you guys are so great as a congregation, I'm never going to worry about you. Not that at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I love you so much that I worry about you. Not the kind of worry that is despair, but the kind of worry that is, I hope something for you, and I'm not sure that you're going to be able to attain it. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of my making requests for you, all with joy. So I'm happy, I'm filled with joy, I know that things are going to work for you, but listen, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And let me tell you exactly what I'm praying for. Verses 9, 10, and 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now stop right there. I pray that what happens to you from this point forward ultimately brings glory and honor to God. But the only way that that is going to happen is that you go from where you are right now and you continue to be established. You know, strengthened, settled, confirmed. 
that kind of person that is taking in the truth, holding on to it dearly, being faithful until death, that kind of person who puts their armor on every single day as they recognize they're going to be. If there's any question about whether it's going to happen or not, they are going to be fighting Satan in some way. So for those folks, he says, my hope is that you will continue growing in all of these areas so that the result will be God's glorification. That your love may abound... Now, to abound means to superabound. Okay, well, can you just put super as a prefix in front of the word? So what? Well, that means basically what's happening in a lot of these ditches right now, right? They're designed to hold so much, but they overflow. That's the idea right here, overflowing its banks, going beyond the limit that is normally associated with it. That your love may abound, go over its banks. Still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge, well, you know, that's, that's the gaining of, of the truth. Uh, the, the scriptures, if you will. I want to know what God wants me to know. I'm going to grow in knowledge, but also in discernment, so the sense that I'm, I'm going to be able to judge what it is that I read or I hear from the scriptures. He says, okay, now, but I'm not talking about just mental acuity, I'm not talking about just your ability to handle it, but what I want you to do as a process of maturing or being established in the body is you do that with love. That your love abounds more and more in these areas, in knowledge and discernment and judgment. Love people, in other words, with that knowledge and the way that you you exercise your judgments in your relationship with other people. And also mature, that you may approve the things that are excellent. That's the idea of maturing. I think of Hebrews 5 verse 14, that you are able to exercise your senses to discern both good and evil. To mature means that I've come to the place where I know the difference. I know what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to abhor what is evil. I'm going to cling to what is good. I don't have to. In other words, it it would be great, you know, every situation that arose, somehow or other, a scripture would just pop up in my head and that would apply to that situation. Usually that doesn't happen to us. But I've talked to lots of people who said, you know what, I, I I don't know exactly what the scripture is, but I know this isn't right. You know, it's like, I just, I've gotten to the place where I have a sense of what is right and what is wrong. We may not be able to put our finger on it or call the scripture, but we know that in our absorption in that truth, that this just doesn't measure up. We have our senses, not just our knowledge, our senses, our ability to experience a thing, our intuition. We have our senses exercised to discern what is good and and what is evil. We also also are going to have a sense of our our relationships to one another. So we're going to live our life in such a way as 
to put things that we experience to the test. We're going to not just turn away from the evil in the sense that I recognize it's wrong, but we've got to lay hold or grasp or be glued to what is true. He also stresses the idea of sincerity. Sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. Without offense. And, and I'm not necessarily thinking that has to do with the way we treat one another so much as it is our growing relationship with God. So I'm handling his word aright. I'm expressing my knowledge and my discernment in a loving, profound, loving way, overflowing the bank sort of way. I'm, I'm growing in my maturity in the sense that, yeah, I'm gaining knowledge, but it's, it's changing me. It's changing my conscience or my intuition. I can truly discern what's right. I become sincere in my approach to the Word. And I don't say, well, yeah, I know what that is, but uh, I'm not going with that. No. The idea is that I'm submitting myself to God's will and I'm letting His will direct my steps, sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. And then he talks about righteousness, but a different aspect of righteousness. Not just that you do right, but he says being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruits of righteousness. You break that down, the idea is it is that which is born of or the result of the righteous life that you live. Or, trying to put it more simply, the outgrowth of right doing or right living. Well, you and I know, Galatians 5.22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We, we look at that, and here's typically what we do. We go, well... Yeah, I, I need to work on that, or I need to work on this one, or, boy, that's kind of missing in me, so I need to give some... That text is not describing a list of attributes I should be working toward. What it is describing is a life that is influenced and impacted by God that, without even trying to do it, manifests these characteristics. And to me, that gets back to the question of the what. What do you do with that spiritual muscle that you have developed? What do you do with it? If all I'm doing is just housing it, then how has that done anything in me? If it's doing something in me, then it is driving action. Not because I intended to do it, but because I can't help but do it. Here's the thing, and I, I, I haven't just learned this, but it's been reinforced in me since I now have a grandbaby. <laughs> three, over three weeks old now. Are you getting tired of hearing it? All of a sudden now on Facebook, I'm seeing everybody's great grandbabies and babies. And I'm like, it's an epidemic. But I like seeing those happy little faces, don't you? And I was telling somebody before class here tonight, it's just there's something soothing about just holding that little baby. Well, as an adult, you don't just set a baby aside and say, well, good luck. You know, it's a harsh world. 
We're not alligators or crocodiles. We're not reptiles. Reptiles tend to just let their little babies go. They might even eat them if they can get a hold of them. We don't treat our children that way. In fact, that, that little baby can't do anything. Well, let, wait, back up. That baby can't do anything for itself, but that baby does plenty to those that are associated with it. Like with our little Millie, she has changed the dynamic of the family completely, and she can't even say words yet. You go over to Kyle and Casey's house, that house is full of equipment for the baby. Even the dog can't get sleep because when the baby cries, everybody comes to attention. Take care of the baby. Baby's helpless. We do not set a little infant child aside and say, good luck. We dote over it. We try to take care of its ever, every whimper and need. That should exactly be the same thing as mature Christians deal with babes in Christ. Someone obeys the gospel. They come up out of that water. That is our cue to rally around that person and become a tremendous support to them because they are a new baby. Are they going to make mistakes? Nod your head this way. Yes, they are. They're going to make lots of mistakes. They're going to say things and we're just going to be like, oh man, what in the world? But we're not going to kick them out on the sidewalk because they're babies. And we want to nurture them and bring them along and feed them and help them to grow. And as we do that, yeah, there are going to be hiccups. And believe me, that little Millie, she gets the hiccups a lot. But that doesn't mean that we need a new baby. The hiccups will pass. And eventually that child will grow into a mature adult. Same thing in the spiritual family. That is the whole idea of establishing the body of maturing its individual members to a level of adulthood spiritually. We have responsibility for that. Not just that we should do it, but that we must do it. Okay, we're going to stop right there because it just happens to be time to stop. And we're going to have a prayer after that, give about 15 or 20 seconds for our parents to rush out of here and go get the kids, and then we'll all be dismissed and be safe going home, okay? Now, head this way. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we've had to study together, and I, I pray that the things we have studied are an encouragement to us, help us to be aware of those around us and to be sensitive to their needs, to to do our very best to help one another to grow, to become more mature. Help us feel responsible for that. And that when someone stumbles as a part of this body, help us all to feel it and to be affected by it and to do the best that we can to rally around them rather than to shun them or to put them out. Help us to be like parents of newborn children, to see to the development of our babes in Christ. Lord, thank you for your son who makes the church possible in the beginning and help us to be good stewards of what you've put in our hands to be able to hand this off to another generation of people to continue that line, the prospect of the gospel being carried to all people in every time. Thank you for the blessing that you put in our hands to be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.